p.m. on the East Coast. Sorry, Tommy. <laughs> Dan Nathan, we got a guest joining us today. Our man Connor's joining us. Uh, fan of the Dallas Cowboys, apparently. We had that conversation prior to. Uh, big wins last night. Something hadn't happened in 476 or something games that happened last night in the National Football League. Just goes to show you, Dan, you never know. Strange things can happen. That's why they play the games, guy. I mean, otherwise, that is why. And, and, you know, let's just get it all out there. Any given Sunday, any team can win. Even your your hapless Giants Mm -hmm. were to win on a Monday. Were to win Mm -hmm. on a Monday. How about that? Um, I'm excited to have Connor on with us here today, guy, because there's a lot of things going on in the energy patch that we could use an expert to help us with. So stick around for that. We're also going to trade... The Bitcoin. How about that, buddy? We haven't had a Bitcoin trade. No, we haven't. In a while. You know, it's probably an interesting time to do it. Bond auction, Fed speak tomorrow, a lot of things that have China, what's going on there. Bitcoin hinges on all those things. But before we get to the rundown, are you a fan of the movie Coming to America? Of course I am. Well, there was a scene in that movie where Eddie Murphy uh, is mopping the floor and he waltzes into. Remember John Amos of Good Times fame? Of and he course. basically wants to curry favor with him. So he talks about the football game that he watched the night before and how the Giants of New York yeah. defeated the Packers of Green Bay by kicking an oblong ball through a <laughs> giant H. And that's exactly what happened last night. So yet again, Amazing. Eddie Murphy, a man, of his t- man well ahead of his time. Let's look at the rundown, as they say, because here's the things we want to talk about. Inflation cooled slightly. Okay. Um, you know, as Doug Cast just pointed out, and we've tried to point this out as well, since January of 2020, you know, if you add it all up, the cumulative effect is approaching 25%. So, you know, it's all through the eyes of the beholder. As you mentioned, energy, we're going to talk to Connor, MA boom, and your Bitcoin trade. So that's what we're looking at, amongst other things. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, the inflation stuff's really interesting um, because, again, if you just want to look at the kind of year over year numbers, look at where the Fed's target is at 2%, it doesn't feel like it's that far away from it. But there's also a component guy that that is going on in the, in the labor market that I think is really important, right? Because as we've seen goods deflation, right, we've seen services stay pretty, pretty stubborn here, right? And then if you think about just going back to the jobs market, we had that November jobs print on Friday morning, right? And it showed that the unemployment rate actually ticked down a little bit, right? So to 3.7%. And some of the data that we're seeing and some of the strategists and the economists that we follow, you know, they're showing, you know, on the higher end, right, we're seeing lots of white collar jobs that have been eliminated, but we've seen, you know, a good, I guess, demand for, you know, like just kind of more blue collar sort of stuff. But at some point, if inflation doesn't start to like really crater, right? And get back towards the Fed's um, target. We could have a situation where if a higher end consumer starts to slow down with rates much higher at a time where they're not seeing wage growth or actually job losses, then that's going to put, in my opinion, again, not an economist guy, downward pressure on wages all across, you know what I mean? The, the spectrum there. And that could be the sort of thing where you get into a scenario where we're going to start guessing What's good for the markets when we see this sort of data, right, from week to week? Because last week, the market liked the the, the unemployment 
number. I, I don't know why, right? Today, they seem to be, you know, kind of benign on this inflationary reading. And then it really comes back to what the Fed's going to say tomorrow at their meeting. And everything I've read this morning, Guy, suggests that there's nothing that the Fed has seen that should give them any reason to do a victory lap and, and say that we are going to start cutting aggressively anytime soon. Fair enough. So, and I agree with everything you said. Real time, if Jacob and or Stephen can pull up a TLT chart, you'll see that this 30-year yeah. auction just went through. 4344 when issued was 4347. So obviously better than expected. And you saw the move into TLT went from basically, I think, 94 pre-auction to 94 and a half in a straight line. Um, that is not, if you can do a daily chart, Jacob, sorry. I think that'll give you a much better illustration of what just transpired. There you go. Wow. Let's be there. So there you go, just in terms of what we've seen over the last few minutes, which the broader market probably liked as well. Um, and there you have it. So that's what we were waiting for today. But, you know, that's how... You know, that's how hair triggered the market is these well, days. Let, 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 let's take a step back here, guy. So TLT up, iShares 20-year treasury ETF. That means yields down, right? Mm -hmm. Your point is equity market um, likes that. So everything's coming up roses here. Hey, by the way, you know, guy has Jacob or Steven or Amanda, uh, and we all sit here in front of our screens all day long staring at FactSet, and you see how um, quickly they kind of move things around a little bit. For any of you folks, we get questions all the time. We get lots of emails. We get questions to ourselves. Where do you get all these charts? Where do you get all the data? Where do you get all the news stories? Where do you get all the analyst ratings and, mm -hmm. and census estimates and all that sort of stuff? Well, you can try it out too. FactSet.com slash LP slash MRKT dash call. Get a free trial there. Check it out. I mean, it really is amazing. So we we deal with a lot of retail investors, guy, over the years, uh, especially through our relationship with CNBC and Fast Money, and we do a lot of speaking and a lot of events and stuff. And people always ask us this question. And not only that, that last screen you just saw, uh, Street Accounts, which is obviously a fact set service, and that is an amazing aggregator of news stories and opinions and stuff going on in the market. So um, thoughts there. You've been using Street Accounts and Fact Set guy for decades. Haven't I don't know. I you know I should know this. I don't. I I will tell you when I moved to the equity desk at Goldman Sachs, I want to say 2003 or so. I, I don't remember yeah. exactly, but that's one of the things that you had to basically have. So I don't know if it was 03, 04, but I have street accounts up all day. And just in terms of seeing the scrolling news that comes across, it's a, not a great aggregator. It's the aggregator in terms of what's going on. And then you could start to archive things. What are earnings coming out? What are you looking ahead for this week? I mean, it's a wonderful resource. So we're talking our book without question, but it doesn't mean we're wrong. So you should definitely check that out because um, I think it's important. And if you're doing this, uh, you need to have, well, you have to arm yourself with, you know, the best tools possible. And I don't think there's a better one out there, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I've been using it also for decades there, Guy. All right, let's go back to yield. So again, you know, yesterday we were talking, you know, you know, who knows if we had a hot number, might we see uh, yields get bid up a little bit? So here we are at 4.2% or something in the 10 year, right? And you know, again, like to me, uh, you know, if we get through this Fed meeting and there's no big surprise, we talked about it a little bit yesterday, we talked about it on Fast Money, then, you know, like, like, okay, have at it, people, right? Like, you know, like, you know, the, like the, the, the easy trade is, is higher from here on out. You know, I do get worried about sentiment readings. I do get worried about the level of complacency. I do get worried about how when folks, you know, get into a new year, they're willing to take more risk, but it also feels like the potential headwinds, you know, the geopolitical stuff out there, what, what crude oil 
soil. And, and again, Connor's going to help us out with that a little bit. Um, what it's saying about growth is, is not something that to mm-hmm. me speaks to going out there and buying stocks after the run that they've had over the last month and a half, um, given what we think we know about the challenges in 2024. You know, China, it, it's sort of, a, it's FXI is up slight. And when I say slightly, I mean very slightly today, but that's been a slow motion sort of train wreck that's seemingly picking up speed now. And I mentioned, you mentioned your Bitcoin trade. And I think a lot of that sell-off that we saw on Sunday night, we talked about this yesterday, was probably predicated in large part to what's going on there without question. So there are a lot of things clearly to be concerned about. And then let's just pull up a VIX real time if we can, because as we're sitting here, I think we just breached 12, which again, you know, that's fine, I guess. But, you know, you're talking about levels again that we haven't really seen since earlier this summer, if not long before then. So yeah. it's just all these things. It's just something to keep in mind. Now, the flip side of that coin is somebody like in Ed Yardeni, and we sort of illustrated some of this yesterday, but let's pull up that headline because not only does it see the market going higher, you know, he's looking obviously for some pretty uh, remarkable things not only next year, but in the, in the in the coming year. So if you can pull up sort of that Ed Yardeni headline about the S&P and we can have this conversation because there are a lot of bulls out there right now, Dan, and he sees 6,000 in 2025. Wow. Well, we, we went through a lot of strategist um, targets at the end of 2024, right? Um, so to get to 6,000 in 2025, I mean, you know, here we are at 4,600 or so, you can do the math and the sort of rally that we'd have, you know, it goes back to, you know, we had uh, Lori Calvacino, RBC Capital on the pod, on the tape on Friday, we had uh, Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley on the pod the prior Friday. And we were looking at some of their targets and how we get there. And again, no one has the ball and, and probably the way that Ed is doing it, you know, is probably a bit easier. I will also comment that Edgar Denny was also calling uh, early to or 2020 for the roaring 20s, okay? And, and definitely um, in late 2020, 2021, I mean, that was kind of a mantra. And Ed's been on the pod, and he is a really, really sharp guy who's been doing this for a very long time. Um, so could we have a 30% rally guy in the next two calendar years? Sure, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, and then it brings it back to this, okay? So what we're talking about with Lori and, and Mike is that, you know, this whole notion that when the Fed starts cutting interest rates after a, you know, large rate hiking cycle, it's usually not a great time when they start cutting to buy. Mm-hmm. It's a good time when they pause. And you could have said that about the summer, right? Heading into the into the fall a little bit, like that was a good time when we were down. But here's the deal, man. I got a lot of folks saying to me, well, what if this is just like 95? You know what I mean? What if we are literally on the precipice of a massive multi-year rally? And that's, I, I think, what Ed is saying here, guy. It look, it certainly appears that way. And so many things. First of all, let me put it this way. Things are lining up for that without question. I'm not changing. You know, Melissa asked me last night, what would change your view? Um yeah. And I said that, you know, the problem that I'm having is so many of the headwinds that I see are very long cycle things that don't change overnight. And I went through a laundry list of items and I still believe that. So Doug talks about this. We talk about this. You know, price has a way of changing sentiment, but it doesn't necessarily change the fundamentals behind it. So, you know, I can say the fundamentals continue to deteriorate and the market continues to go higher which should just make it that much more scary to the upside, which is something you say as well. The higher it goes, the more concerned you get, especially when we're looking at a VIX that's, you know, either side of 12 now. Maybe, again, maybe for good reasons. You know, maybe I'm completely misreading everything that's transpired over the last couple of years and sort of all the things you've learned 
uh, in your time in school and then subsequently in time at work have sort of gone by the wayside. I just don't think that's going to be the case. Well, listen, guy, people keep pointing to the broadening out of the rally, right? So what the equal weight S&P has done off of the October 27 low versus the market cap weight, right? And it's literally, it's up, you know, 14 and a half percent versus let's say 13% for the market cap weight. That that to me is not that impressive. And if we look at the E-minis in the S&P mm-hmm. 500 futures here, um, we got back to that prior high from July. We broke out two days ago. Here we are, it, you know, like that's a beautiful looking breakout. But also when you think about what it takes for that to happen, um, you know, yeah, yeah, the broadening out is fantastic. Some of the groups that have been big laggards, you know what I mean, are starting to participate um, a little bit. But really, pretty soon, it will come back to fundamentals. And then the other one here is just the NASDAQ E-mini futures guy. When you think about this, and again, we can quickly move from one to the other because we know that 30% of the weight of the S&P 500 is 10 stocks. We know that 50% of the weight of the NDX is, you know, um, 10 stocks and, and they're going to have, you know, a similar sort of impact, if you will, uh, on a breakout here. Um, they both look really, really constructive, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of it has to do is rate dependent. It's dollar dependent. And it's commodity dependent at this point, And obviously inflation. Let's look at the Russell because it's telling a bit of a different story here. So you look at that and, you know, obviously we're not... You know, it's been underperforming. We've been pointing that out for quite some time, the underperformance. You know, my concern again, and we don't have to belabor this point, but bank credit is contracting. Despite the fact that the unemployment rate went lower that last tick, I mean, maybe for a myriad of different reasons, but I think, in my opinion, that will trend the wrong way in terms of the employment picture. So when you have an economy that's predicated on small business hiring, and then subsequently those people buying things, no, the, the lifeblood of the economy is credit. Credit is contracting. Uh, there's seemingly layoffs going on. We just heard from Hasbro. Again, Hasbro's not the market, but we're seeing it from a swath of companies. So you start to play the whole thing through. If the consumer slows down for whatever reason, the economy slows down. And I think to a certain extent, the underlying weakness in the Russell is a manifestation of that. Well, listen, if they want to pull out the Russell to a five-year, it's still 20-some percent um, below its 2021 mm-hmm. highs. And I made this point on Fast Money last night, too, Guy. If you look at the S&P 500, I mean, there are 290 stocks, okay, that are up on the year. So that means that there are 210 stocks that are down on the year, a year that the S&P is up a little more than 20% or so, all right? So think about that, okay? Like 210 of them are down on the year. 145 guy are up 20% or more. So that means that there's 145 or whatever that are underperforming the index, which brings us back to the market cap weight. And you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of ways to skin this cat, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to be that broad of a rally. And if I look at the Russell that's most exposed, right? So they got hit the hardest when the Fed signaled in late 2021 that they were going to raise interest rates. Your point about access to credit Right. And your access to uh, or or the adverse effects of inflation, a lot of domestically focused companies here, a lot of financially oriented companies here. The Russell is telling you a very different thing. I don't care that it's up 14 percent. You know what I mean? From a two year low in just a month and a half. It's saying something different than the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100. And it brings you back to the fact that there are 10 or 15 stocks that are driving the train. And as long as those fundamentals are good and as long as there's existing demand for their products and services, is great. But let me pull up another chart. ORCL guy, it comes out. And look at how this stock is trading today down nearly 12% after their quarter 
and guidance. And they are trying to play in all the places that mm-hmm. the leaders in the NASDAQ are playing. But this is two consecutive gaps, guy, and two consecutive quarters off of an all-time high. And I think if you're not paying attention to this, you're making a mistake. Because this has the ability to infect itself into some of the much larger names that are driving the major indices as we get into Q4 earnings season in January. So that's all I'm saying. If, like, if there is no caution anywhere, okay, not in the VIX and not in the bear bulls and all that you know, stuff, pay attention to what's going on under the hood. Because under the fair. hood, it still doesn't look that great. No, fair. And you're right in terms of you know the seemingly... Again, we use the word complacency a lot, and and maybe it's you know maybe I use that as a derogatory term. Maybe the level of complacency complacency is commensurate with you know some of the tailwinds that are going on. But I will tell you, you know, don't let again. It's it comes back to the whole thing. If the only thing you look at is price, then everything looks great. If you look at everything else, it's sort of percolating below the surface and is sort of um, on the perimeter looking in. Yep. Then you then there are things to be concerned about. And sometimes the last thing to go, in fact, is the market. So look, I looked at that, I looked at that number this morning and I looked at that as, you know, made the Fed's job a little bit more difficult. Obviously, the markets for whatever reason seemingly liked it. We'll hear what the commentary is tomorrow because, you know, if you really go under the surface, uh, the, the it is not mission accomplished by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. No, no doubt. And, and here's the final piece of the puzzle. Let's pull up the CME Fed funds um, tracker here a little bit. If you look at December, that's tomorrow, the meeting. It's basically showing a near certainty that there will not be um, a move one way or another. The Jan meeting is Jan 31, guys. So we got about a month and a half. Again, looks the same as the deck. So there's no expectations for a move. The upper end of the bound is 5.5% in Fed funds rate. But March is a little different story here, bud. It's, it's kind of mm-hmm. shaping up where, you know, uh, maybe they stay, maybe they cut, right? And and so that is the one that I think you're going to probably want to kind of focus on over the next couple of months is whether that rate cuts get pushed out, right? The way that they've been pulled forward. And I think that's the thing that probably weighs on investor sentiment, especially as we get into the new year, if there are any fundamental hook up, uh, hiccups in the stock market. You know, it's crazy. You're right, by the way, in terms of, you know, I think as Elizabeth Young, EY from SoFi talked about, you know, Fed rate cuts got pulled all the way into March of next year. I think, as she mentioned, is a January meeting. They skipped February, March. They skipped April. You know, I don't know why that doesn't matter. But anyway, so pulled to March. So and I think depending on what you look at, almost five rate cuts are seemingly baked in. But Again, when you look at what's going on in terms of just the markets and all different things, the unemployment rate, why is the Fed cutting rates next year? Is it because they slayed the inflation dragon? I, I just, I'm hard pressed to sort of wrap my head around that, but that's clearly what the market is looking at right now and taking stock in, no pun intended. So, yeah. We'll watch and see, Dan, because that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. You know, market right now is pricing in a soft landing. Some would say it's pricing in a no landing. Uh, What the definitions of those are is, you know, beyond me. And so if they are able to kind of gradually start to cut rates, it means that they can normalize interest rates, right? Because, you know, in the period... I I don't mean to stop you there, but what does that even mean? You know, in terms of, you know, I would submit we are, we have normalized rates, you know, and you can actually, if you really want to get down to it, you can make arguments that, you know, we're probably maybe still 25 or 50 base points away from, you know, absolute normalization of rates. Yeah. But the last 15 years has been anything but normal. But I but I understand, you know, I'm not 
getting on you. I understand the language yeah. around that, but that's what we've been conditioned well, to believe that normal rates are much lower than we are now. Yeah, I mean, relative to inflation, right? And so that's that's the thing. So um, again, I, I'm I'm with you. I just I, I put it out there because that's the stuff that um, we hear every day. Let Let's get to what we think is probably one of the most confounding things in all of the financial markets right now, and it's what's going on um, with crude oil. And we have Connor McLean. He is mm-hmm. the senior uh, energy analyst over there at FactSet, coming to us live from the Big D. There he is, Connor. Welcome to Market Call. Hey guys, thanks for having me. All right, guy, let's 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 kind of work him in. It's it's his inaugural sort of uh, maiden, you know, maiden, maiden voyage, as maiden they say. Here. And, and he's he's you know he's here for the big deal. He's got like a soft machine behind him. You probably get that reference, guy. I'll bet Connor doesn't. But like we've just kind of gone on and on about some of the things that are confusing us about the stock market, about interest rates, Connor. Give us a sense of like what you're feeling about the energy complex in general. We could start with crude oil because if we think about inflation and we think about core, we think about guy, you love the super core last year, right? That was one of the things that used to get guy all tuned up a little bit. I mean, with gasoline at the pump coming, coming down, that's kind of making the Fed's job a little easier. How are you thinking about gasoline, crude oil, this inherent weakness that we've seen despite what's going on geopolitically and the like? Yeah, as you mentioned, right, crude prices are coming down, right? Yesterday, we broke below $70 WTI. um, And there's kind of a lot of factors driving prices down. Some of it's global and some of it's domestic, right? When you look globally, you just had an OPEC meeting where they uh, release a new round of cuts, but there's a lot of skepticism around those cuts, right? They're voluntary. There's some funny accounting with some of the numbers. And in reality, those quotas aren't going to move the market in the short term. They're kind of longer dated. And and when you look at the history of OPEC cuts and what happened previous cycles of the market, when you look at the market today, you still have U.S. production growing. We just crossed 13 million barrels a day domestically, and we're still growing even at a reduced price day. And so you've got supply pressures on the market. And then as you talked about, China's the big wild card for demand. You look at Chinese demand, you don't need negative GDP growth in China to have falling oil demand. Right, GDP growth of four to five percent is probably in that right range to get flat year over year oil. So, you look at Chinese demand. If if things are softening, we expect to see OPEC and IEA release new demand estimates this week. Right, if they're going to soften their demand outlook and we get that oil demand coming off in China, that's you know without even accounting for real estate risk, right, the debt burden, right, and ignoring all the other Chinese things. If it's just demand driven. You reduce demand, you increase supply in the U.S., you've got a recipe for weak prices. Connor, the politics around crude oil have always been there, but seemingly more so today than they've ever been. You know, depending on, again, I, I don't want to be political here, but depending on what shows you watch, some people will say this administration's doing a remarkable job in terms of, you know, the release of the SPR, where prices are now, uh, production, to you mentioned. I mean, we're at record levels for the United States. so. In a certain regard, you know, these are the golden days of the energy market and our energy independence. And you look at other places and say, we gave up our energy independence. So it's a fascinating debate. But the reality is, as you mentioned, 13 million barrels a day in the U.S. is fantastic. Paul Sankey came on Fast Money a few weeks ago and actually scared me a little bit because I've been bullish. I've been right. I've been wrong, right, wrong. Right now, it looks incorrect. 
But one of the things that he said is if these OPEC cuts don't hold in terms of price, you know, there's a chance that the Saudis come and say, you know what, uh, we're just going to flood the market with oil and let the chips fall where they may. And to a certain extent, it appears as though in terms of the commodity, we're getting that priced in a little bit. Is that something you think about? Is that something on your radar screen? Yeah, I think we have seen that in the past where, where Saudi Arabia has flooded the market and said, we'll, we'll bear it. Uh, but when you look at it today, right, so many of it's not just Saudi Arabia, right? It's all of the Middle East, uh, a lot of the Gulf states that are dependent on oil to balance their budgets. And when you look at the impact of cutting or releasing production, rather, if they release production into the market, that's going to reflect on their budgets long before it impacts the U.S. producers, right? U.S. producers have like long-term rig contracts. They're hedged much more than any international companies might be. And so U.S. producers are going to be able to withstand lower prices longer than I think the domestic budgets of uh, those Gulf states are going to be able to. So I think the, the risk there is probably less than some people may have thought in previous iterations of a downturn. Connor, as we think about the move into year end, and, and again, you know, OPEC Plus has been uh, on the you know tips of, of most uh, investors' tongues as they think about the energy complex. And that meeting was pushed out, and then there's a lot, been a lot of back and forth here. And if you just look at just this kind of stair step down from that 95 range in crude, right? And then we had a bounce back and we got to 90, and then we cratered all the way to 75 and bounced back to 80. And it just seems really methodical here. It seems like every rally is being sold. And so when I look at it now, it seems like 65, which was kind of the lows um, from the spring or so, seems like a, a foregone conclusion. How do you think investors um, are thinking about crude in the new year, given everything that you just talked about and all the geopolitical stuff guy just kind of mentioned everything like that? Uh, I'm just curious, like, what, what is your outlook for crude oil headed into 2024? Yeah, well, on one hand, you look at how producers are reacting, at least the big ones in the US, and they don't seem deterred by low prices, right? You just saw Chevron and Exxon come out with uh, increased capital budgets for next year. They just came out. I know we're going to talk about M&A, but you know, the, they just come out of acquiring Pioneer and Hess. Um, you just had Oxy acquire Crown Rock. You know, uh, they announced that on Monday. So producers don't, don't seem to be deterred by, high, by low pricing. And that's true in the gas market as well. We've got a bearish outlook for natural gas, but producers are relatively well hedged. They're looking to just kind of wait out a period of low pricing and then grow production at the end of 24 into 25 when pricing is expected to recover. Uh, so when you look at maybe near term, there is going to be some weakness. We're oversupplied. There's not really a lot of bullish demand sentiment. And I'm not really sure where that sentiment would come from near term unless you get a really cold winter. So probably near term bearish, especially in the first quarter. But as you look out to the end of 24 and 25, when we get some structural demand growth, both in oil and in gas, you've got some underpinnings for some support. Connor, you mentioned M&A. Let's pull up the fancy slide that we made because there you go. I mean, you talk about $53 billion. I think there was a $60 billion in there, you know, a smaller four and a half, 12. You add it all up, it's probably either side of $130 billion-ish worth of potential M&A, which is a staggering amount, something we haven't seen in the energy space in quite some time. So these companies are basically saying, you know, Things are going to get better here. You know, the, the the space isn't going away. It's not going the way of the dinosaur. We're actually going to get stronger as the years progress. I know what I think this means. What do you think all this M&A activity means to you? 
Yeah, I would caution that this M&A is, is reflective of producers being bullish on their core um, mission, right? Exploration and production. But it could be more reflective of them trying to insulate themselves from future risks, right? Increasing their longevity by acquiring more tier one locations, uh, increasing their productivity by acquiring underperforming assets, not necessarily a commitment to long-term oil and gas demand growth. However, in our view, there should be a commitment to long-term oil and gas demand growth. We're not necessarily as bullish on the transition to carbon neutral by 2035 or 2050 or wherever you set that target. Basically, all of those targets seem unreasonable at this point. And so oil and gas producers should be investing in their future. And for ones that are willing to make moves or at least have the balance sheets to support moves, you're seeing them make those moves. And I think it's notable here that who is making the moves, right? It's the big ones. It's Exxon, it's Chevron, it's Oxy, uh, right? The only people we aren't really seeing in the game right now is Conoco. Um, and there's you know potentially some more moves out there to be had if they want to get involved. Connor, you know, Guy and I talk about this all the time. I think we talked about it in a market call yesterday, not really in regard to the energy complex, but most of the time when we see M&A, it doesn't happen when some of the underlying fundamentals in, in a sector are, are are very poor, right? And, 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 and you could make the argument, and I think you have made the argument, that even with crude oil come down the way it has, the fundamentals aren't exactly poor, and that's why you're seeing some of this activity. Now, some could look at it the other way, right? Like that, that some of these folks... Um, you know, are looking at the cash that they have and, and, and you know, and, and the landscape and the like, and they're trying to do some things to secure their future and what might be an increasingly volatile sort of environment. I'm just curious, um, from your standpoint, um, you've been following the sector for a while. Do you think that these actions are being made out of strength or fear of future weakness? Uh, it's probably a little bit of both as it always is, but it's probably a position out of strength. We come out of 21 and 22 with really high commodity prices. You've got great balance sheets for a lot of these producers and you've got a lot of excess cash sitting around. Um, I think you see in the, in the Exxon deal, you see in the Chevron deal, those are all stock transactions. Um, but then you look at the most recent Oxy deal taking on a lot of debt, right? To, and all of those are really betting on the future price of oil going up. Right. This, do, this deal for Crown Rock doesn't make sense for Oxy if we're in a declining oil mm -hmm. price environment. Um, you see in an all-stock transaction right, that Pioneer and Hess are betting on oil prices going up and their equity now investment in Exxon and Chevron uh, is more valuable right, than just taking you know, straight cash. So uh, I think that this is a, a bullish sign right, for, the, for the industry long term. That, that players are getting involved in making acquisitions and rather than just trying to extend their tier one inventory by a couple of years on the back end of this oil. Connor, we appreciate you joining us. You know, I'll just amplify some of these statements by saying every time we've seemingly got something bullish in terms of announcement in the space over the last couple of years, starting by the way with Chevron announcing that $75 billion stock buyback, I want to say last October. I mean, each one of these has been a short-term top in the individual stocks and in the space in general. And then I'll just throw on top of that, Warren Buffett, you know, now owns, I think, 25% of Oxy. So there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic for the space. The reason not to be, though, is the price action. But Connor, we'll definitely have you back. Thanks for joining us here on Market Call. Yeah, Thanks, absolutely. Con Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
Thanks, Connor McLean, Senior Ernie, uh, Energy Analyst over there at FactSet. Guy Adami, um, let's talk a little bit about the dollar, right? And so talk about that weakness that we've seen here. And, you know, the U.S. dollar has come off. If we look at the Dixie, I think we have a chart here. It made that double top near 107. Here we are. We're contending with that 200-day moving average, right? So we had the dollar going lower, and we had crude going lower. And I know we talked a lot about this relationship um, a little bit. Any any thoughts here in and around the U.S. dollar and how we might see like some sort of decoupling, you know, because normally it is not the sort of relationship where they both move in the same direction together. No, clearly not. And there's so many factors at work here. You know, Connor mentioned the weakness of China. You've brought that up a number of times. <clears throat> OPEC getting their act together, OPEC plus, maybe not so much. Um, some of the pressures there, historically, obviously a weaker dollar or a dollar that's trending lower. It seemingly should be supportive of commodities, specifically crude oil. That's not playing out right now. So the cross currents, again, not only just in the two things we're mentioning now, but across a swath of things, in my opinion, have never been greater. So it's tough to figure out. And then to your point, you throw in the move in bond yields and it just sort of it, it muddies the waters a little bit. Um, but that's why you play the game every day, Dan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that maybe it's muddied a bit is Bitcoin, which is something you know you want to put on a trade here, and we got some great, we got some great charts from our friends at CME to take a look at this one. Yeah, we do, and, and you know this is like one that guy. I think you and I were kind of left scratching our heads a little uh, last week when we saw that huge reversal in gold, right? And so we saw gold break out to a new high, um, and then it had that overnight reversal, and then it's just kind of been uh, careening lower a little bit. There's that chart right there, and it just broke that fairly steep uptrend. And so going back to Bitcoin for that guy, we were like, okay, so, you know, Bitcoin has been on this huge move and it's been kind of like in lockstep with gold outperforming gold, uh, might, might we add, mm -hmm. right? And so <clears throat> not too different than what we saw in gold a week ago, we had this big up move, new 52 week highs and then reversal. <clears throat> and so that reversal yesterday was pretty aggressive and it remains pretty heavy here. And so when I think about maybe the dollar firming a little bit, that's what kind of we were looking at in that last chart a little bit. I say to myself, this is something going back to that one year chart and that uptrend. Um, if we have one in, uh, and Bitcoin here, guy, I, I think there's a move um, a little bit back towards, you mm -hmm. know, here we are. If we want to look at these kind of micros here, um, you know, you look at this level here, 41,140 or so. I almost want to sell them here. I don't almost want to sell them. I want to sell them here, but I want to keep a fairly tight top on this. And, and I look at this. And I think you and I kind of alluded it to it yesterday. It looks like it could be like a sort of island top because we had that gap higher to a new high. We had that push higher. We had the consolidation. Now we have that move lower to the gap level. And when you think about that, if you had an uptrend not too different, right, than what we saw in the gold, I want to press it going through there. So I want to sell the, the micro Bitcoin futures at 41,410. I want to use a stop up there at 42,000 or so. And my initial target guy is 40,000. You may say, well, 1400 points, that's pretty aggressive, but you know, I'm risking possibly 600 to make. So it's risk one, sort of make two is is kind of like the, the you know the risk reward that I'm thinking about here and if I start getting this going lower I want to continue to move that upside stop to the downside agreed trailing stop we've talked about that I think your stop level is right if we can go back to a prior chart the one that sort of shows that gap I think it's two charts ago the CME chart you'll see I actually think your initial target should be probably to be honest with you closer to 39,250 or though, but now we're sort of nice. nitpicking. But 
you know, it changes sort of a two to one to maybe a three to one in your favor. And you look at it that way. But I think your point about the potential sort of little island reversal or doji star, I mean, I think that's in that's definitely in play. So selling it here, tight stop, that stop level absolutely makes sense. You want to nitpick and say, you know, maybe it's a 42,250 or something, but the levels make sense. Um, if this starts to work in your favor, though, you, know, you obviously the first thing you do is you lower the stop, you trail the stop, and then say, okay, maybe I'm not giving myself enough uh, upside on the downside. And if this starts to accelerate, maybe that 40,000 take profit does turn into that sort of 39,250. But I love this trade. Yeah. So last point I just want to make here, guy, just broadening things out a little bit on the macro, because I think what Connor had to say was really helpful on the commodity complex in general. And I think you bringing up the M&A is really important because it shows that there are executives, right, who have stakeholders who are feeling, you know, like this is a really good opportunity to take risk here, right, in, in their sector and the like. And when you think about risk taking, I mean, right now, just look across the board. I mean, the, the stock market um, is telling you that investors, um, the VIX is telling you that investors are feeling okay about the inflation picture right now, right? We're seeing crude oil just come down, amplifying the message out of that inflation reading, right? That we're going to continue to see, um, you know, gas at the pump kind of ease um, for consumers. You're seeing a dollar that is obviously weaker than it was, you know, a couple months ago. You're seeing yield sell off on that inflation in print. And, and again, everything's coming up like buy stocks. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I know that sounds, that's not what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what I'm saying that I'm doing right here. I think that this is the exact time where you probably want to get your antennas up about, you know, like the higher we go again into year end might be the harder we drop in the new year. Everything is clearly coming up roses. I mean, the latest was again, what people will say is a better than expected bond auction. Peter Burkbar had a great note. I don't know if we can put that in these show notes, but if we can, we will. Because he pointed out, although it looked good, I mean, again, some things below the surface you might want to take into consideration. But right now, that's all systems go for the market. I understand it. I don't agree with it, Dan. But again, we'll be back tomorrow to sort of break it down. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, with the great Carter Braxton worth of worth charting. Yeah. Why not, right? On a Wednesday. So CBW from Worth Charting on with us. Guy, we covered a lot of ground. We got to thank Connor McLean. He is the senior energy analyst over there at FactSet. Um, also, go check out FactSet. Mm -hmm. You can go get a, a nice little trial there. You can look at all the stuff that we are looking at, all the charts, all the analytics, all the analyst estimates, all the analyst ratings. The list goes on and on. And of course, uh, Guy's uh, infamous street accounts that powers Guy Adami. So thank you all for being here. And of course, thank you to CME Group, Guy, where risk meets what? Meets opportunity. And there was an opportunity last night in Tennessee because my goodness gracious, <laughs> that I, I don't know how the Dolphins lost that game. You got to watch. If you want to watch something, watch the last five minutes of that game last night. It was remarkable what happened. But you know what, Dan, as they say, that's why we trade the markets and that's why they play the games. Matter of fact, all right, we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. And obviously, listen, you can follow us on the socials because all these oh, trade check ideas, this out. Look at all this. this stuff that we're putting on, we are basically clipping it and we're putting it on our Risk Versal Media Insta. We obviously can follow us in your favorite podcast store. We are also on the Twitter. Look at that. We got a LinkedIn guy. Did you know we have a LinkedIn account, right? And that's owned by Mr. Softy. I know you, you love that. We obviously have a little TikTok. And we're in the Spotify. So check us all out, people. We're all over the place. Follow us on the socials. See you tomorrow.